verses 5 through 9. It says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Lord, as your word goes forth this morning, I pray that it would be in power, that it would be used to convict and to train up your people for service and, and worship unto you. We ask, Lord, that you open our hearts this morning, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in Jesus' name. Thank you, Larry. Good morning. Great, great, great to see you all. In the countenance of hungry, spiritually hungry, redeemed people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Um, on our website, um, we left a sheet on your seat. This is a couple months ago. Instructions on how to listen to a sermon. How to listen to a sermon. Most people don't know that there's a proper way to listen to a sermon. There's, there's a correct way for us to prepare ourselves to hear the Word of God. Because this Word is living. This Word is active. This, living, this Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word of God that builds us up, that edifies us, and that what? Transforms our thinking. Amen? Continually conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And today, if you're visiting us, we want to welcome you. But we've been working our way through Ephesians since March. And today, we are wrapping up or concluding, not the book, not the letter, but the section in which we see how harmonious relationships are made available. And that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the relationship between the husband, the wife, the family, the children, the parents. And today, we look at the, the roles and the responsibility of slaves and masters. Employees and employers. And they're synonymous. And you'll, you'll see that unfold here today. But how many of you, when you go to work, especially every Monday morning, and you're sitting in traffic, and... Countenance oftentimes reveals much. Amen? If you ever sat in traffic on a Monday morning, people are on their way to work, you can look around at people's countenance and they look as though they feel that they are a slave to the grind. And perhaps we've all felt that way at one time or another, I suppose, yeah? Well, hopefully today, if you feel as though you are a slave to the grind by just going to work and working and not being thanked, perhaps you're a poor employee, perhaps you steal, perhaps... You lie. Perhaps you only work hard when the boss is looking. Perhaps you're a boss who's not that good of a boss. Perhaps you're a boss who oppresses your employees. Hopefully today when we walk out of the doors, we'll have a whole new idea, a whole new biblical perspective as to the roles of the slave and the master, as to the roles of the employee and the employer. And as Larry read... Notice he, he opened up in verse 5. It says, bond servants or slaves, be obedient 
to those who are your masters. Now, we have difficulty with those terms today, but throughout Scripture, we know that God has ordained the system of leadership and submission. It's ordained by God, leadership and submission. We see it within the structure of the family. Husbands are to lead the families. Husbands are to be spiritual leaders. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. We see it within the church. We see it within the government. We are to submit ourselves or subject ourselves to the governing authorities over us. You get pulled over by a police officer this afternoon. What are you going to do? Unless you're a fool. <laughs> you're going to pull over. Those lights represent authority. And we subject ourselves to that authority as ordained by God. Today we're going to look at submission within the workplace. And no matter what we do, no matter where we go, someone has to be in charge, someone has to give the orders, and others are called to follow. They're called to abide. They're called to obey. Husbands, as I said, are to lead the family. Elders are to shepherd the church. We have studied over the months that the older women are to teach the younger women. We also learned, if you remember the role of the widow in 1 Timothy 5 and Titus chapter 2, going from house to house, teaching and instructing younger women and mothers how to be good godly wives, good godly mothers. It's all ordained by God. So submission and authority clearly given throughout Scripture by God's design. And we see mutual submission also is ordained by God. And today we look at the roles of servants and masters. Possibly translated in your Bible, bondservants or masters. But in Paul's day, there was up to anywhere of, it's to up to six million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slavery is an age-old concept, and here it is, this will startle some of you, an accepted institution. Okay, bear with me, please. Bear with me. An accepted institution. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the New Testament is slavery attacked or condemned. Now, because we here in America have a very slanted view of that term and what it conveys, and rightly slow, so, as we look at history and the methods of slave trading in the early years of America, it was very cruel and very unbiblical. But it's always important for us to get a biblical understanding, a biblical perspective of the time, the culture, and today, the meaning of the term slave. Now, it's my job as the Bible teacher, as the teacher of this body, to take you back to biblical times, to draw the background of understanding so that the text makes sense and that the text is in its proper context. Are you with me? Very well. Now, Paul's ministry was not to overthrow the Roman government. The ministry of Christ was not to overthrow the Roman government. The ministry of Paul was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ministry and the public earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was teach, to teach that redemption comes through Him and Him alone. God's in the heart change in business. Not a culture change in business. It's when you focus on changing the hearts of the people and God does that divine work, guess what happens to culture? It follows the heart of the man. 
follows the heart of the woman. So the context here of servant-master is a relationship that is within the domestic framework of the family. That's the context. You, you see Paul giving clear instruction to the family. And if we go back to chapter 5, verse 22, it begins with wives in the relationship to the husband. Husband being the head is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. A lot of instruction for men. We spent a lot, a lot of time, fellas, amen? You walk out of here, walked out of here torn up a few weeks, didn't you? As did I, but that's the purpose, that's the point. And also, we, we looked at roles of children last week. And now here we are, bond servants and masters. Now, this bond-servant-master relationship was set with the idea of these servants or these slaves being part of the owner's family because much of the income for the family was normally generated in or around the home. In or around the home. Perhaps the family raised crops or they raised livestock or they made clothing or baskets or earthen vessels. Whatever the business, whatever the case, most of that business was done in and through the home. It's done in and through the home. Even those who had shops in the marketplace, the majority of the business to get to the, to the marketplace was accomplished in the home. And to get the work accomplished to a satisfactory measure, they would have to acquire help. And what they would do is they would purchase servants, slaves. And these slaves slash servants slash employees would become part of the family many times. So it was much better to be a slave than it was to be a day laborer. Because slaves, servants slash employees actually took on part, took on the uh, benefits of family. So they lived with the family, they produced with the family, they produced for the family, and they in turn would become part of the family. Now in biblical times, slavery is widespread throughout the Bible, and some of it was bad, no doubt about it, but certainly not the majority. There was prejudice, there was threatening, there was harm, and among the Greeks it was very oppressive. The typical Roman mentality of the day was that work was beneath them. So they treated their slaves as though work was beneath them, and they treated their servants as, uh, with disregard, with disrespect, without kindness, without care, with, without dignity. But ownership of a servant, ownership of a slave, was a right that was given by God to Israel. And in Leviticus 25.44, you just jot this down, you don't have to turn there, but it says, As for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Okay, so they had this freedom. And we've got to understand what the purpose was. They were employees to these families. God instructed them not to rule with severity. If they were, that slave was free to depart. And we read of this in Exodus 21, verse 26. It says, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and there's damage done, he's free to go. If he strikes him and knocks a tooth out, he's free to go. Now, if the master was cruel and the servant escaped and he found a safe haven or he found a family where he was safe, to dwell, 
Deuteronomy 23.15 says, You shall not give back his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses with, <clears throat> within your gates, where it seems best to him, and you shall not oppress him. Also, every seven years, a bond servant, a servant to a family, a slave to a family, every seven years, or a debtor slave. There was people who were indebted to a family, to a person, and they would become a slave to that person or that family for seven years. And every seventh year, they were given the freedom to depart. And we take a look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Every seven years, it's kind of like free agency, which we'll see here in a bit. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 12, it says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. Also your female servant you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. And then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So if they chose to leave on that seventh year, the owner was required to give him a severance package. You send him out, but don't send him out empty handed. You make sure you send him out and you care for him until he gets to his next place, his next destiny, wherever that might be. If they chose to stay, what they were saying was, look, I don't want to go anywhere. I love this relationship. I love serving you. I love this family. I love the blessings that come through this family. You take him to the doorpost, put his ear to the, to the, to the doorpost, and drive a hole through it. And there was an earring there representing, I belong to him. I'm a bond servant. I'm a willing servant. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus bondservant of the Father. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Now also, in the New Testament, we see a, pas a pattern of the servant-master and without any commandment of abolishment. And this little letter known as Philemon, which Paul wrote to Philemon, Philemon was a man who came to faith under the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. Paul, in the meantime, down the road, was arrested, chained, taken to Rome. He's in chains to a Roman guard, a slave himself, and he writes a letter to Philemon. And the reason he writes the letter is that he runs into this young man by the name, Ones is by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. And Onesimus, which means useful, 
who was a common name for slaves, ended up stealing from Philemon, and he departed from Philemon. And then within the sovereign framework of God, he brings Onesimus before Paul. Paul gives him the gospel. He comes to faith in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he becomes a servant of Paul in Rome. And he comes to find out that you were a slave of who? Philemon. I know Philemon. Guess what, brother? You're in Christ now. Guess what you need to do? You need to go back. You need to be faithful. So he writes this letter to Philemon, and Paul says this. He says, I, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart. He goes on to say, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. So here in God's sovereignty, there was an unfaithful slave to his master who departed and stole from him. God brings forth faith in him as he runs into Paul, and Paul trains him up a bit and he sends him back. And he says, perhaps all of this bad was for the, the sake of him coming to faith in Christ and him becoming even a better servant to you. Because notice what he says. He says, no longer is a slave only, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So not as it only is he going to benefit you now in the flesh, is a better servant. He's also a brother for eternity. He sends him back. Paul says this in verse 17 to Philemon, If then you count me as a, part, as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. In other words, I'm sending him back. He doesn't, doesn't have anything to give you back. But I tell you what, if he, whatever he owes you, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Jesus gives an illustration in Luke chapter 17. He speaks a parable. And the parable has to do with duty and the role of servanthood spoken by Jesus himself. And in Luke chapter 17, verse 7, Jesus says this, Which of you having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down and eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward then you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now the context of the parable that Jesus is speaking about is this, that obedience to Christ and obedience as a servant of Christ need not or ought not lead anyone to think that he deserves special merit for what's expected of him in the first place. Nothing. So the point of the parable is faith and duty for believers in the faith but it's interesting that Jesus uses the illustration of a bondservant and his master to make his point. So, it's very important. Here it is. Whatever terms are used, whether it's master and slave, whether it's servant and master, whether it's employer and employee, 
It's not the terms that are important. It's this. The relationship of a redeemed heart and how they interrelate that God's concerned about. Whether you're a slave, whether you're a master, whether you're an employer or an employee, God in the context of Ephesians is speaking about redeemed hearts, people saved by grace, and how they are to relate to one another but by the grace of God. You get it? So that's the background as to this whole slave-master terminology. Because we in America are going to have a skewed view. We're not going to have a right understanding. If we think of slavery in, in, in early America as to slavery in the Bible, it's a wrong perspective. This is the biblical perspective. As a matter of fact, the, it, 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 the thing that ended slavery as it was in America was not politics. It was the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield. It was the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield with the uncompromised gospel of Jesus Christ that resulted in the elimination of slavery, the elimination of child labor, and the exaltation of women. It began to exalt women. It wasn't politics. Care for the needy also. It was the preaching of the Word of God, and it's only the preaching of the Word of God that is going to transform our thinking so that I no longer see myself as, oh, I'm a lowly employee, mistreated, or I'm the master around the house and this is how we're doing things. See? If we're redeemed in Christ, God gives us the power, He gives us the, the ability and the command to work and relate to one another in a manner that rightly reflects Him, no matter who you are or what your role is. Amen? That is the background. So, with that bit of background, that understanding leads us to our study where we see the authority and submission in the workplace. And this spirit-filled life concludes with slave and master. So, back to Ephesians. Now, here we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And as followers of Christ, how are we to operate within the workplace in a manner that will bring glory to Christ and give testimony to our co-workers? The answers are all right here. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to look at six spirit-filled actions of the employee-employer relationship. Now, if we remember, this is the responsibility of a spirit-filled employee, which takes us back to chapter 5, verse 18. Remember? Chapter 5, verse 18, for the believer. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. Now, if you're a believer here today, who resides in you? The Holy Spirit. We're sinners, wretched sinners, saved by grace. God's breathed life into us, and He resides in us. Anyone who's a true believer has the Holy Spirit. Whoever doesn't have the Holy Spirit is not a believer, no matter what they say. So if we have the Holy Spirit, not only does He reside in us, we are commanded as believers to be filled with Him, yielded to Him, submitted to Him. And the result of being filled with the Spirit, one of those results is verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then he goes down, as we've done over the weeks, looking at wives, husbands, children, and now bond servants and masters. 
The command is the same. Be filled with the Spirit. The effect is the same. Submission one to another. Submission one to another. So, the six actions of a Spirit-filled employee-employer relationship will begin right now with action number one. Action number one of a Spirit is Spirit-filled conduct. Spirit-filled conduct. Notice what he says, verse 5. Bond servants be what? Obedient to those who are your masters. This word obedient is the same word that is used for children to be obedient to their parents in the preceding verses. The word obedience here it means this, to get under and listen. So if we're under our authority, we're called to take heed to our master or employer and listen. To take heed. So simply it means to go to work, do what you're told to do, and do what you're expected to do. That's the command. So the context is Christians. It's not non-believers. Not unbelievers. It's Christians. So what may have happened in this time is that these slaves, these servants, came to faith in Jesus Christ by His grace. And it's likely that they stood up and said, Wait a minute. Jesus is my master. No man's my master. Jesus is my master. And they neglected to do the work that they were called to do with that mentality. But being a Christian, ladies and gentlemen, in no way gives you the right, any of us, to be a lousy, lazy employee. None of us. As a matter of fact, a person's faith ought to be the driving force in which we work to even a higher degree, a higher standard, more diligently, more focused for the glory of God. Being a Christian in the place of employment does not give you the right to be off spiritually daydreaming. does not give you the right to be off on a corner reading your Bible when you're supposed to be separating widgets, if you're a widget separator. <laughs> if, you're, if your job is to separate widgets, you need to be the best widget separator there is, amen? And if you go get saved by the grace of God, He redeems you and changes your life, your job in that place is still to be the best widget separator there is. Simple. No one is going to win their boss to Christ. No one is going to win a, a fellow employee to, to, to Jesus Christ if they're running around with their mouth overrunning things about Jesus and they're not doing their job. You've already blown your testimony, you see? But if a Christian is good and productive and a disciplined worker, he gives evidence of the goodness, the grace, and the power of God. 1 Timothy 6.1. Let me just jot this down. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. What's the purpose? That God's word's not blasphemed by those who don't know Him. So if we're under the bondage, meaning we're under the yoke, or we're under the authority of an employer, show Him honor. He's worthy of honor as ordained by God. Remember, Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Jesus claimed to be the truth. He goes, what is truth? And then Jesus wouldn't answer him. He says, do you not know I have the authority to crucify you? You know what Jesus answered? You have no authority given to you except what was granted to you from my Father in heaven. In God's sovereign ordained plan, He gave Pontius Pilate sovereign rule in that regime ordained by God. 
Remember Peter? They were confronted about not paying taxes. Peter goes to Jesus. Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give the Lord what is the Lord's. So in other words here, bondservant is someone who's under the authority of another. And he's to submit to him in an honorable manner, simply put. Sometimes a Christian will work for another Christian. Okay? They work for a Christian and their mentality becomes, ah, he knows the Lord. I don't have to serve above and beyond. We're equal. Okay, now if we're in Christ, are we all equal in Christ? Positionally righteous, amen? No one has more favor in the sight of God than the next. I don't care who we are or what we do. No one. Positionally, we're equal. But that in no way affects our role within the church, within the family, or within the workplace. And having a Christian boss in no way releases you from working just as hard as though you were trying to win a lost boss to Jesus Christ. And that's 1 Peter 6.2. 1 Timothy 6.2. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Don't despise him or don't look down at him or don't look at him as though you're equal with him in position. It's to the role within the job. You're equal in position unto Christ, but not in that master-servant relationship. You know, in this time, biblical times, there could have been a servant who had a master. The servant was a believer. Okay? And that servant, when he joined with the fellowship of the brethren... He was a mature believer, so he was an elder in the church. And later on, he may have influenced this master in the world to come to Christ. He came to faith in Christ by God's sovereign will, and he now enters the communion of the saints. And within the church structure, guess who's the elder? The slave. Because he's a mature Christian. So that master had no right within the gathering of the saints to have that authority which he has out there over him in the church, you see? Okay, what about my boss who's unfair? That's the question. He's unfair. He's even mean. What do I do about that? I mean, I love the Lord, but this guy is ruthless. Right? There's some that are out there, no doubt. First Peter 2.18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Whew, that shakes against the flesh now, amen? That hurts the flesh. That's why we're called to pick up our cross. How often? Daily. Jesus, God who became a man, subjected himself to Pilate? Come on now, somebody. And we're to do likewise. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. So in other words, continue to work hard. Or, you know what you can do in America? If it's that harsh, you know what you can do? You can go get a new job. So either submit yourself, we're called to either submit ourselves under the harsh rule of that particular boss or go get a new job, but don't waffle, take naps, or rebel against the authority. I mean, we can speak, point out a wrongdoing, but we're to be examples. 
So action number one is obedience. Action number two, spirit-filled perspective. Spirit-filled perspective. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. According to the flesh. This is having an eternal perspective. Keeping in mind that the one you're serving, you're really serving Christ. So if I'm serving this boss, though he's not the best boss, my focus is an eternal one. I'm serving my master in heaven. This guy, I'm just serving according to the flesh. This is temporal. This is temporal. Larry read from Colossians 3, and 3, Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily. As unto who? As unto the Lord. And not unto men. So if you have an issue with an individual, keep in mind that it's ultimately Jesus Christ that we serve. Ultimately, we serve our Master in Heaven. An employee is owned by his employer, in a sense. He's owned by him. He has the ability to order him around. And we're called to obey, with a healthy understanding, that is, of being the owner's property. For instance, when, when an individual goes into the military, if you sign the document, you take the oath, you are known as a GI. And that stands for government issue, right, brother? It's my lieutenant brother right over there, Eric. Lieutenant Eric. Government issue. You are owned by the government. If they give you orders to Siberia, you know what you do? You pack your bag and you get on the plane and you go to Siberia. That's what you do. Or you will find yourself in the B-R-I-G, the brig. Amen? Plenty of military people here. Can I get a witness? Come on now. You are GI, government issue, owned. Sports figures are bought and sold annually. Great sports player, NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, whatever it is. After this season, you'll see some of these guys who are professional ball players become free agents. You'll see some guys get traded. Some owners will go after another guy and they'll pay high dollar for him. But they have to pay the owner because that owner owes him, owns him. When he's released, he comes under new ownership of a new owner. Not only does he pay, not only does this new owner pay the owner of that team, he also now pays the player. Ownership. And that owned athlete now comes under the authority of this owner and he obeys. If he's a tight end, he better play tight. And he better be good. And he better play to the fullest or he loses his job. It's that simple. He's out of there. Ownership. And they commit themselves to the owner and they obey because they are the property of that owner. Property. So if we have an eternal perspective of understanding this, we know that our submission to them is just the flesh. It's according to the flesh. It's temporal. But ultimately, we stand before our great master, the Lord Jesus Christ on Judgment Day. And again, as believers, you're not going to be judged for your sin. We're aware of that, amen? You will never, ever be judged for any sin if you're a true believer. That judgment is the judgment of reward. And depending on what we've done in His name according to the flesh will determine our reward on that day. 
And 1 Corinthians 3.15 says that on that day some will suffer loss. Suffer loss. When we lose an eternal perspective of life and we lose an eternal perspective of what we're doing and what we're called to do, no matter how long we're called to do it, we get trapped in this negative aspect of life and we become, become the bitter complainer, the whiner. And then you got people handing you cheese all the time. Cheese goes with wine. No whiners, no complainers. And then we neglect to do what we're called to do with a term perspective. And we get caught up like this, guys. Look, here's where the devil comes. The devil comes like this. He wants to get your eyes off of Christ. He wants to get your eyes off of having eternal perspective. Here's what he does. He puts blinders on you like a horse. Now, all you can see, man, is what's in front of you, which is your problems, and a whole bunch of yourself. I can't see you right now. I see my hands. I see parts of my arm, but I can't see you. Now, I see you all. And my eyes are off of myself, and they're off of my problems, and they're on what's ever in front of me, knowing that I'm serving my master in heaven as a servant to my earthly master, which is simply according to the flesh. Action number three and number four. A spirit-filled attitude and effort. Attitude and effort. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart. Fear and trembling. Here we have reverence and respect. God's ordained it. Fear and trembling. Reverence and respect. Respect them for the role that he or she has over you. Show respect. This is caring concern. This is con kindness and consideration. Your attitude, our attitude, ought to be one of reverence. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he told the Corinthians that he came among them in fear and trembling. Paul, the apostle, I came among you, corrupt, twisted, worldly church at Corinth. <laughs> I came among you in fear and trembling. Corinth was messed up, amen? He said, I came to you with fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians 7.15, he speaks about their having received Titus with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, you received him. Philippians 2.12, Paul exhorts us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, the sovereign work of God alone works salvation in you. Okay? You didn't work it in you, by the way. He chose you and He worked it in. We're called to work it out. You can't work out what's not been worked in, amen? Because you'll be frustrated and you'll be trying to act like a Christian rather than just becoming and being one. There's a difference. People who try to act like a Christian who don't have the Holy Spirit of God eventually end up into a very frustrated state of being and you don't see him around anymore. John said in 1 John 2, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had really been of us, they would have remained with us. But because they went out from us, it, they manifested the reality that they're not really of us. 
work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And in all those cases, all those cases right there, reverence and respect, care and concern is all that those terms in that context implies. Now we move to sincerity of heart. This means singleness of heart. Heart is cardia. We get the word cardiac. And it means the seat of one's thinking. Not emotion, but thinking. We're going to get a lot into this, or into this heavily when we get to the whole armor of God. The heart is the seat of one's thinking. This is single-mindedness. Single a single-minded focus. Sincerity here signifies singleness. And it comes from a word that means one-fold as opposed to two-fold. Not being double-minded. A single-minded focus. Context, serving your boss in that manner with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart. To do your best at all times. Not to be double-minded. 1 Thessalonians 4.10 But we urge you, brethren, now listen to this, that you increase more and more. Are we here to increase more and more? In godliness and Christ-likeness? Yes. Amen. To increase more and more that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. This is basically, basically means here, do your work, shut your mouth, and do a really good job. Right? Mind your own business. Lead a quiet life. Work with your own hands. Paul said it. I didn't. Just the messenger. Do a good job. Do your job as though Jesus Christ were looking over your shoulder. Because you know what? He is. <laughs> he is. Show up early. Get prepared for the day. If you start at 8, don't roll in at 8.02. Don't roll in at 8. Roll in at 7.55. Roll in at 7.50. If something needs to be done and accomplished that day, stay a little late. Do the job. I know a lot of lazy, bad workers that are Christians that are concerned about winning their boss or their fellow employees to Christ. And they're terrible workers. They've blown their testimony already. Nobody's going to give them the time of day because their work ethic, which they don't have, is terrible. Terrible. Credibility, totally shot. So if you're concerned about winning people to Christ that you work with, start by being a hard, disciplined worker. Speak volumes. Be sincere to those you work for. Don't cut corners. Don't peel off the top. Don't take something that's not yours. You know, I used to, before I was in quote, quote here, full-time ministry. We'll get to see in a minute. If you're a Christian, you're in full-time ministry no matter what you do. But before preaching was my role and the primary of my time was is studying the Word of God, I worked in heavy construction. I worked as a welder and I, and I worked on big construction sites. And, and I worked for a family-owned business to where I had a lot of freedom. I had my own rig and I went around town and I worked for major contractors. Well, I built up a reputation over time and I was given a lot of freedom. And with that freedom, I came into immediate contact with general contractors. So they would request me, and I would come and do the job, and my boss would bid it high. I'd get it done swiftly. He'd make money, and I'd make money. So he would never bid a job 
hourly because I would get it done too quickly. You know how it is. When you do a job and you do it right, you get good at it. And you don't like waffling around. You like productivity. So what guys would do, these contractors say, hey, I know this wasn't in the contract, but I got a little something over here I'd like you to cut or do, and if, I'll give you 100 bucks. Just whip it out for me. I wouldn't go there. I didn't go there. I said, look, if you want the job done, you call my boss. If he okays it, I'll do it. You pay him, add it to the bill. I could have slipped a couple hundred bucks a day in my pocket. It's no way to deal. That's no way to work for a man. Spirit-filled attitude and effort, that would be double-mindedness. Lining my own pocket. Action number five, spirit-filled motivation. As to whom? As to Christ. Here it is. Christianity knows nothing of that which is sacred and secular in regard to what you do is a job. Okay? There's no such thing as, as a Christian is not being in ministry. There's just not. If you were by the grace of God born again and the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have an everlasting relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You're in full-time ministry. Welcome to ministry. Welcome to ministry. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 12.1 Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your what service? Reasonable service. It's the least we can do. It's the least we can do. There's no secular life for the believer. A lot of believers go, well, this is my time. This is my time. You know, uh, my recreational time, yeah, I've got to let the flesh out a little bit, you know. You've got to stimulate my flesh a little bit. You know, that's my rec time. Then i got my family time. When I go to the gym, I act like a tough guy, so that's my tough guy time. And I like to mad dog people and stuff and act like a tough guy. And uh, with my kids, you know, I'm a little different over there. And then, oh, and i got Jesus on Sunday. Oh, on a Wednesday, too. Yeah, that's right. So i got two little spots for Jesus. Like a little magnet. No, 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 no. It's all Jesus Christ. It's all sacred. It's all sacred. People who don't see life as full-time ministry, some of them, guys that I know have said, man, if I could just quit my job and go into full-time ministry. And then I'm thinking, dude, you're like lazy. I don't want you working next to me. Full-time ministry. You're in it. People want to go to work in a church and get paid, thinking that's full-time ministry. People begin to jockey for position, trying to move into some role. Whatever your role is, do it as unto Christ. You'll have a whole new perspective. And by the way, not everyone's called to particular church ministry or functioning or working or preaching in, in, within the body of Christ. We serve out there and we serve one another in here. We bear witness of Christ out there. We reflect and we edify one another in Him in here to be more productive and effective out there. It's all ministry. It's all ministry. Just be faithful where you are. Other people, maybe they're called to it, but they haven't been faithful in the little. So why on earth would God give them much to be faithful in? 
must be faithful in the little. That's Luke 19. He was faithful in little, be faithful in much. The best way to be a witness on the job is to do a good day's work. Do it as unto the Lord. A lot of this, uh, the Christian community has lost their sight of doing a good job. And uh, Dorothy Sayers, who was an Oxford Bible scholar, she died in 1957, she said this, and I quote, The church in our time has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. Has forgotten that a building must be good architecture but before it can be a good church. That a painting must be, a well paint, must be well painted before it can be a good sacred picture. And that work must be good work before it can be called God's work. You know what? So many times we say, well, I'm doing the Lord's work and we do a shoddy job. We need to be up here with it. A whole other level in everything that we do in bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Action number six, spirit-filled Attentiveness. Spirit-filled attentiveness. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers. Not a man-pleaser. Not with eye service. Eye service. But doing the will of God from the heart. So Paul explains here what it means by sincerity of heart as unto Christ. It's not to win the boss's favor when their eyes are on you. It's not to start shuffling your feet when he walks in the door. You know, start, you know, rearranging things on your desk. You know, click off of this stupid website that you're on that has nothing to do with your work. Not with eye service. Believers are to live and act as slaves of Christ. As though we're doing it unto him. Whose eyes, by the way, are everywhere, amen? His eyes are everywhere. Men pleasers, step it up when evaluations are getting ready to be handed out. Man pleasers, step it up when raises are going to be distributed at the end of the year. Those are man pleasers. Those are people who are more concerned about their reputation, which is your status or how you appear, how you're perceived, versus character character, moral fiber, the moral fiber of who we really are. Reputation, that which is outward, soon revealed. Sooner or later will be revealed. Amen. But character, when we focus on building inside the truth of Christ and walking and obedience and abiding in Christ, the character is built in and then it flows out, you see. It just flows out. There's no striving. Then you don't have to be tripping all the time. There's a little modern vernacular for you, a little tripping. You don't have to be so consumed and concerned. Man, is he here? Is he here? Is the boss? Oh, the boss is here. Shoot! Just pulled in the, just pulled in the parking lot. Those are called kisser uppers. Don't be a kisser upper. Kisser uppers lack integrity. Doing the will of God from the inside. Concerned about him and what he thinks. It's obedience that springs forth from the soul. Knowing that, yeah, I'm serving him in the flesh, but he's my real master. He's my real master. So I'm doing it as unto him. Doing it as unto the Lord. It's hard to act like a Christian when you're not one. It's frustrating. 
If you're abiding in the vine, Christ is the vine. We're the branch. And when we abide in Him, all the life that's in the, in the vine comes up and through and out of the branch. It's called fruit. It's called fruit. Remember when Jesus saw the fig tree? Looked good from afar. Had a lot of leaves on it. And He walked up to it. There was no fruit on it. You know what He did to it? He cursed it. Why? Because there was no fruit. There was no fruit. Verse 7. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. So Paul, he's repeating the same thing as he did in verses 5 through 6 here. So in serving a boss, and serving a company, and serving a corporation is to serve God if our perspective is correct. If it's an eternal perspective that we're talking about, a reputable business, one that deals honestly, this can be. But we serve the master, whoever he is, in the flesh, when we're really serving our eternal master. You can have a waitress. She distributes menus, she takes orders, she brings your food, she cleans up, and that could be enough, right? You can do enough to get by. But if she serves to Christ, not only does she value the Lord and value herself in the Lord, she also now has a new perspective and a value for the people that she's serving. Whole new perspective. There's guys right up on Balboa standing on the median selling Sunday papers. Now, they can be doing their job, providing service, earning money, giving out paper, when nobody even cares. Doesn't even care. One of the guys from the last service actually knows one of the guys and knows his name. Chats with him when he gets his little paper. But some people may not even care. But if that man, whoever that man is up there, or a woman on that median, knows Jesus Christ, he will care for the people, value the people, serve them according to Christ, and he will value what he does as important, even though he may be irreplaceable. Though he's irreplaceable, his job is still important. And he has a perspective that glorifies God and sees people like God wants him to see people because he serves as unto Christ. What we do and how we do it, it matters because all of life is lived in and lived to and lived through Jesus Christ. Believer, Romans 11.36. Oh, just listen to this. Write it down, but listen to this. This is rich. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You don't breathe without Him. He holds your breath in the very palm of His hand. You don't walk without Him. You don't talk without Him. You don't operate and function without Him. You can't work without Him. You can't remember Scripture without Him. You're not saved without Him. Everything is Jesus Christ, period. Everything. That's how we got to look at life, guys. Like that. Then He has a promise attached. Verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from who? From the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Whether you're an employer or an employee. Whatever. He's the rewarder. He gives the reward. You know, whatever good thing a servant of Christ does, no matter what it is, it does not go unrecognized. 
There's a guy in our last service. Someone in the church sent me a video of him, and he's outside of the DMV when everyone's in line, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority. Oh, they're not coming, running, falling down in repentance. But he's got a captive audience. So you're not going to give up your line at the DMV, amen? It's enough hassle to get in that place. They haven't even got their number yet. <laughs> he's preaching the gospel. And I found out from his wife this morning that he's been doing that for so long, but no one ever comes up to him. But on that day he was preaching this last week, it was his birthday. And like six people came up to him and wanted a track. They wanted more information. The point? People might mock him, which they do, wag their head, squint their eyes. But you know what? God sees it. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 4, Your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Perhaps that reward is here on earth, but more likely that reward will be at the great bama seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the fiery eyes of Christ will look through every motive that we've ever done down here as we serve in the flesh. Look at verse 9. Now we have the responsibility of a spirit-filled employer. Okay, you can jot this down as you notice there's no bullet points or anything there. Spirit-filled employer, just write this in. All of the above. All of the above. Look at what he says. And you masters do the same things to them. Do the same things to them. Giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. All of the above. See, Christianity does not erase social or cultural distinctions at all. Servants are servants and masters are masters. Slaves slash employees. Masters slash employers. The titles are a bit different over time, but the status and the authority is the same as ordained by God. Just because we come to Christ, it doesn't erase those things. So an employer must seek the welfare of the employee. Do the same things as unto them. You know, as an employer, if he wants his workers to do their best for him, he's going to do his best for them. Amen, employers? Don't take advantage of them. But exhort them. You know, Boaz was a guy like this. Remember Boaz in Ruth chapter 2? He comes down from Bethlehem. He's going to his fields. And out in his fields, he has his workers, which are his reapers. And he comes out and he says to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And his reapers' employees did not go, Freak. They did not do that. They said, the Lord bless you. Blessed leadership, amen? Blessed working environment. You know, there's those that I've heard say that, you know, my bo boss is supposed to be a Christian, but you'd never know it by the way he lives or by the way he runs his business. So the same is true for the master. The same is true for the professing Christian employer. So, another thing he must not do, he must not threaten. He must give up threaten, rather. Give up threatening is what he must do. So, Paul suggests that the Christian master has a better way to encourage obedience than by threats. Because that power would be in the negative. 
people walking around in fear. If you're an employer, if you're a master, small m, you don't want them walking around in fear. But positive mo motivation will go a lot farther. That's the Lord's way. Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See, when a man or a woman can share in the results of his or her labor with the owner or the leader, he'll work, probably work better and harder. Let him share in the fruit. Let him share in the fruit if you're, if you're a, a leader. Don't be harsh. You know, God made this clear in the Old Testament, by the way. We're wrapping up here. Leviticus 25:43. Thou shalt not rule over them with rigor, but shall fear thy God. When you rule over them, do not do it with rigor. Do not do it forcefully. Do not do it in an oppressive way. He must be submitted to the Lord. The master must be submitted to the Lord because his own master is in heaven. You know what Jesus said about the way to be a good master, about the way to be a good leader? You must have to first be what? A good follower, a good servant. Matthew 10:27, Jesus said, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, God lowering himself to the earth, lowering himself to the womb of a woman, coming out a baby, a human being, God in the flesh, submitted himself to authority, and he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He lowered himself. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He's our model. So if you're an employer or a master, let him be your example. Instead of oppressing or being threatening to your employees. A leader must lead by serving. And you know what? Great examples in the Bible. There's a reason why so many great men of the Bible were first servants before they were leaders. You know Moses? Before he led Israel out of captivity, okay, he was 40 years old when he fled Egypt, living in the Pharaoh's house. He killed an Egyptian and he fled. You know what he did for 40 years? sat on a hill and watched over sheep until he was 80. And when he was 80, God called him and said, Go, deliver my people, Israel, from the bondage of Egypt. Who shall I say sent me? I am. But I am that I am. King David, Israel's greatest king. You know what his first role was? Shepherd boy. He was a shepherd boy. He was a servant. Great warrior, shepherd, servant, diligent, disciplined. Joshua, he took over the reins from Moses, but he first served as a servant under Moses. Nehemiah, the list goes on and on and on. Servant-mindedness, those are the great leaders. A leader must lead by serving. Next, he must not show partiality, as there is no partiality with the Lord. Now, obviously, those employees who go the extra mile, they'll probably reap reward for that, Amen. They'll probably, and they deserve it. And there's no reason we can't do that. But this type of favoritism is your boss who, say, he runs a warehouse. He has males and females, and he's got this little cutie pie over here, and 
he just thinks he's the cat's meow, so he treats her better than everyone else because she's this little cutie pie. Or he has an employee who's his padre buddy, so he treats him better than everyone else. That's what we're not to do, not to show partiality. First Timothy 5.21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Nothing. And again, all things are for and through and unto Jesus Christ. And if we can keep that perspective, you'll be a great servant or you'll be a great master, be a great employee, a great employer, and you'll have harmony within the workplace just like we will in the family structure when we're full of the what? Spirit. Full of the Spirit. And this wraps up the instruction of these harmonious relationships. Christian men, Christian women, children, employer, employee. The result? A life that rightly, here it is guys, a life that rightly glorifies our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's the result. The probability, the probability of a life like that, you know what it leads to? Spiritual attack. Spiritual attack. If you're not being attacked or you're not going through some trial in your life, you probably want to check your walk. Seriously. When someone is yielded and given and surrendered to Jesus Christ, you're either going into a trial or you're coming out of one. You're either going into one, you're in one, or coming out. Amen? It's just short spans of no trials and tribulations. God gives us that so we don't go insane. But all for His glory. Amen? So that probability is spiritual attack, which attempts to get us, here it is, guys, off track because Satan can do nothing about your salvation. Did you know that? If you are in Christ, there's nothing he can do about your salvation. If you're truly in Christ, what kind of life do you have? Everlasting life. Can you lose something that's everlasting? No. But again, many people think they have it and they don't. That's another story. If you're in Christ, you have everlasting life. He can do nothing about your salvation. All he can do is attempt you to get you off the track of a life that brings glory to Jesus Christ, which puts a basket over the light. Jesus said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. When you light a lamp, you put it on a lampstand. You don't put a basket over it, amen? You're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. It becomes asphalt. So with that probability, that probability, with the potential for the enemy of our souls and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places come with the attempt to hinder us bringing glory to our Redeemer Jesus Christ, God provides through Paul in the rest of Ephesians chapter 6 the whole armor of God. And we're going to begin next week with an overview of the whole armor of God, spiritual warfare, what it is biblically, and what each piece of the armor represents. A lot of people pray, oh, I prayed on the armor today. Really? What does the breastplate of righteousness mean practically? Mm, uh, I don't know. What does shutting your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace mean? It means I need to walk around and share the gospel. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. That's not the context. So we're going to learn the, and understand what each piece represents to have a victorious life that allows us and enables us to stand and resist the enemy of our souls. Satan 
and spiritual forces of wickedness, hate Jesus Christ. And if they hate Him, they hate those who represent Him. They hate those who are redeemed by Him. And He wants you bringing no glory to the Master, our Master. So, let's go out with a new perspective of the servant-master mentality, according to the Bible, and be the best master or the best servant, whatever you are, for the glory of God and our great Master in Heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these dear people. More than anything else, I thank you for their redeemed souls through the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the instruction that you've given us through the living, active Word of yourself. Father, I pray for everyone here, each one of us, to grasp a greater understanding of what it is to have not only an eternal perspective of life, but how we're to operate in the flesh or serve those according to the flesh for the spiritual grandeur of everlasting life and the glory of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that everyone will go out of here transformed by the renewing of their mind to operate in a manner that's effective and bringing you the glory due to your name. Pray that you'll prepare us to receive and understand what biblical spiritual warfare is. That we don't need to sensationalize it, but that you have simply given us the instructions of what to do. It's to stand and resist. To put on the whole armor of God. And I pray that you prepare our hearts for me to deliver it in a manner that glorifies you and rightly represents the teaching of Scripture. And for your people, your dear people here, to be ready and prepared to receive the teachings and instruction of Scripture for the application of their lives so that we'd be an army of believers individually reflecting you, individually glorifying you, so that we can corporately manifest your goodness, your grace, and your mercy as a body of believers gathered because of your grace. We thank you and we praise you. For all things are for you, all things are from you, all things are to you. Your glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.